Hello and welcome to Wolfie's Talks. Direct from the Middle East, bringing you unique insight from the Pro Peloton and the best cycling brands around the world. Behind the scenes, personal stories, tips and inspiration. These interviews with the stars will take you from the tracks to the mountains and leave you dreaming about riding even more. Tune in to Wolfie's Talks, keeping up with the pros. So good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us again, Wolfie's Talks. Uh, today's special guest, very exciting to speak to Nate um, from SRAM and more from Quark than um, I think there was a couple of years ago, obviously SRAM purchased Quark and Ned will tell us all about it. Ned, normally I ask my guest the last minute before the race, uh, you check obviously your power meter if everything is working, but how, how are you when, before, the, before the race starts? <laughs> uh, before the race, I'm usually like on an actual race start line, I'm thinking through what the day is going to have and what I need to do. So it's usually positioning where I'm going to be, what power I need to hold, how hard the start's going to be. It's all those things coming together and just trying to be prepared for what's what's headed your way. Very cool. What start line would we find you most? Is it a mountain bike, a gravel ride? Uh, what, what is your what is your discipline? All of them. Yeah, I, I do them all. Frankly, um, I've done everything from Leadville 100 multiple times. Actually, oh. the founder of um, of Quark, Jim Meyer, and myself. Uh, actually did Leadville 100 on the tandem and set the what's what's the current course record uh, for tandem at Leadville. So we've I've done Leadville on single bikes, tandems. Breck Epic is another one that I've done. I've also done um, well what's now Unbound. It was Dirty Kanza. Uh, done that several times and finished in the top 30 there. And lots of road racing over the years. So I've kind of dabbled and and done it all, which is pretty fun. Very good. The Leadville 100. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Because that's obviously a, a big event. Yeah. Yeah. So Leadville is, uh, it happens in, in the town of Leadville, Colorado. It's at 10,000 feet of altitude. So um, I don't know what that is in meters, but it's, it's pretty high up there. Um, it's actually one of the highest, one of the highest races um, in the U.S. and I think in the world. Uh, but it, it's got a lot of climbing, starts off at a very high altitude. It's all mountain biking, uh, and it draws a really pretty significant audience. There's a couple thousand people that start the race, and it's a one-day, 100-mile race uh, all at altitude. So you got to be prepared to suffer, and it's going to be a long day, multiple hours in the saddle. You know, you're probably looking for the fast guys around seven hours for if you're pu pushing a really fast time. Um, and so, you know, anywhere from seven to 12 to 13 hours is, is pretty standard. And you did it on a tandem as well with the owner of Quark? Yeah, with the founder of Quark, we did it okay. on a tandem. Uh, we had both done it multiple times on, on a normal single bike and we, we decided, Hey, we've got access to a tandem. Yes. Uh, him, Jim Meyer, who's the founder of Cork, uh, him and his wife have, have a nice tandem and Jim and I both had good fitness. And so Jim's like, let's do it. Let's, let's go for it on a tandem. So we jumped on the tandem, went for it and set a new course record. Our first attempt, we've actually done it twice on a tandem. Uh, our first attempt was interesting. 
we went out um, and there was a team from Arizona, I believe, um, Dax, Massey, and a few others anyways, and, and one other, uh, but he, they went out and they, they were riding really well. And they actually broke both our team with Jim and myself and then the other team from Arizona, they broke uh, what was the course record, but we got beat by that other team from Arizona. So we ended up, even though we beat the old course record, they beat us. So we finished second. Um, and then Jim and I decided to repeat it a, a second time. And when we did the, the attempt uh, the second time is when we beat the team from Arizona's time. And we beat them by about 28 minutes this last wow. time. So, um, That's amazing. You used, were you in the front seat or back seat? Uh, I was in the back, so I was the stoker. Um, okay. It's Jim's tandem. And then also just the way that the physics of a tandem work out it makes sense to have the slightly larger rider on the front, just that way you've got more weight on the front wheel than you do the rear wheel. It helps the handling. Um, it also, I get to slot into his slipstream and draft a little bit better. And so for, for multiple reasons, you want the, the slightly larger person on the front. So Jim's about uh, 15 pounds heavier than I am. So he got to ride on the front and I sat on the back and stared right into his back all day long <laughs> wow. seven hours eight hours to look at somebody's back that's tough yeah and you're using yeah. both power meters yes we were we we uh took our cork power meters and we we modified them a little bit in order to be able to run the mountain bike power meter on a tandem um <clears throat> and so we we got that set up and we actually had um a screen on our garmin head units where I could see Jim's power <laughs> and my power. And then he could also see his own power and my power. Um, so we could see each other's power. We knew how hard <laughs> we were going. So we kept each other honest um, as far as who was doing the most work or not. And it was actually pretty interesting because since I'm sitting in the back, I can't, I can't really see what's coming up ahead on the trail. And so I can't, I can't easily look around him or anything. Um, so I did have to trust that power number quite a bit at times. And, and that was actually really helpful just to, to see what kind of effort he was doing. And I would, yes. I would try to match that. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And it was a mountain bike tandem or a cross cycle cross. No, it's a full suspension mountain. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Fantastic. And listen, we prepared a short clip uh, about Quark and I asked Will maybe to play it because I think it's, it's so much technology and I think it will give us so much insight into the company and then we can talk about this a bit. So Will, if you don't mind, Will is our graphic designer doing a great job making, designing our new logos and everything. So Will, please, uh, if you don't mind, if you can help us play the video. My name is Jim Meyer. I'm the founder of Quark. I've been a bike nerd my whole life, whether it's racing bikes, building bikes, or designing bike parts. And Quark really grew from my love for bicycles and engineering and measurement and improvement. So this is Quark headquarters, where we design and test and engineer and test and assemble and build and test and ship power meters to athletes worldwide. So power meters are a precision measurement instrument. There's a lot of detailed electronics and engineering that goes into designing and building each power meter. There's a lot of details that need to be followed every day for every power meter to make sure that it operates correctly in the field. 
Our quark power meters start out as a puck of 7,000 series aluminum. They go into this machine behind me. It's a CNC machining center. After this first operation is completed, then we flip it over into the other side of the machine and the second side is cut. After the second side is cut, they come out, they're inspected, and go off for surface treatment. A power meter is a precision measurement device. So we go to great lengths to maintain the performance and accuracy and consistency of the power meter over all conditions in the field. So here in the factory, we have many tests to ensure this. One is the thermal test uh, to calibrate the thermal response over a large temperature range. We also test the radio frequency performance to make sure that there's good communication with other devices. And we also test the water sealing and the environmental protection to ensure that the power meter performs well uh, over the lifetime of the product. It's, it's really very satisfying. Every power meter that we put into a box to ship to an athlete, knowing how much of a, of a commitment that an athlete has to their training and how we play a role in that. Uh, it's, 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 it's very kind of special to us uh, to be able to participate in such an exciting world. Wow, very cool. I always love the CNC machine. You know, when I, I, I saw this a couple of years back, but I think it's just fascinating. You see that piece of aluminum, it goes into this machine and then it comes on on the other side. And I don't even know where to start to build a machine. And I know SRAM, you build a lot of the machines yourself and you, you kind of design your own machines for certain, certain things you need to do and nobody else kind of needs to do. So uh, really fascinating. Yeah, that, so that was Isaiah. He's our machinist. He's, he's really good at what he does. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We do obviously CNC machines. You can go out onto the market and buy those, but a lot of the other specialized equipment, you saw some of it, a couple little glimpses here and there in that video of some of the custom custom fixtures that we've made, uh, on our assembly line. So basically since there's not really any commercial use beyond our own, uh, yeah. for any of the assembly line or production line. A lot of that we custom make. And so, uh, in fact, pretty much all of it is all made specifically for manufacturing the power meters that we make today. Fantastic. What is your work at SRAM? What's your field of expertise? Yeah, so technically my title is product manager. And mm -hmm. so I oversee everything on the Quark side uh, of SRAM's portfolio. That includes shock whiz, tire whiz, power meters. And then I also kind of dabble into some of the, what I'll call advanced development for the sake of this conversation, which is looking at, at new things. And so that's where like TireWiz, for example, was one of those, those things that we came into of, of uh, you know, it's not necessarily one of those standard products on the market today, but it's one of those that uh, is in that advanced realm of, we want to push the technology of the bicycle further and shockwiz tire whiz are great examples of how we've Perfect. done that and let's stay with me with them and we go back to the power meters a bit later so tire whiz maybe can you tell us a bit and, and the listeners what is tire whiz all about yeah so tire whiz is uh, a tire pressure sensor so it gives you a live tire pressure reading so it's this yes. device right here um, yes. and it and it threads onto your your valve stem um, yes. that sticks out of your rim uh, and so that threads on and it measures the, the tire pressure live of what's actually happening while you're riding. And so that number then gets displayed on your head unit. Okay. And so you can see it on your head unit while you're riding. So you can tell if you're getting 
Um, if your tire pressure is too high or too low, or if you're losing pressure, if you're getting a flat, et cetera. Um, and, and that number will actually highlight if you go below what you've programmed the unit to, to send a signal um, okay. for low or high pressure. So if you go outside of that pressure range that you've set, it'll send a signal to your head unit uh, and highlight that number. And so it's pretty cool. You can actually, um, just like a car, where you yeah. have a tire pressure sensor in your car, it's the same thing for a bicycle, basically, where, where you can see exactly what's happening while you're riding. Um, just a, another personal use of that. Um, I was in a, another mountain bike race and I actually, um, I sliced my tire, sliced the sidewall a little bit. And I wasn't sure that the tubeless sealant was going to work. Okay. And I could see the tire pressure coming down yes. and all of a sudden it started to slow down um, okay. which told me that it was trying to seal up. And so I knew that I only had a little bit left in the race and I, I was able to make an educated decision Very good. to continue pushing to the finish line. And I was able to make it to the finish line without actually having to stop to fix my tire. Um, and without tire was, I, I would have been forced to have stopped Mm -hmm. to investigate what was going on but because i could monitor what was actually happening i was able to keep riding all the way to the finish very good and did you learn a lot about tire pressures during riding that you could make a better decision okay for the surfaces and so on so what do i think we have obviously learned a lot in the last couple of years uh from from manufacturers like zip and so on about tires and tire pressures and we went wider we went lower how much does uh, tire always help you with that yeah, so in the development of the total system efficiency that, that ZIP has used, they did a lot with tire pressure. Um, and, and a lot of that came from using technology such as TireWiz to monitor that tire pressure and what's actually happening. And so um, that has been an integral part of, of developing some of that technology that ZIP is utilizing is understanding that tire pressure and what's actually happening and, and how to be more efficient with it. Very good. And then from tire, was it tire with first and then shock with, or was it shock with first and then tire with? Yeah, it was actually shock with first. Okay. Um, so shock with was a, it's this device here. Um, and so shock with was a Kickstarter project that uh, an individual in Australia named Nigel Wade um, had put on Kickstarter. And Jim, um, once again, the founder of Quark, he actually saw that on Kickstarter and, and brought it over to me and said, hey, what do you think of this? And I, and I was like, that's actually pretty intriguing technology. Uh, we should look at that. So we reached out. We ended up acquiring uh, ShockWiz and bringing that into the SRAM product line. When we, when we, first, got, um, when we first acquired ShockWiz, it was not finished. Um, and complete. It was still in a, in an early Kickstarter phase. Yes. And so we, we worked for probably about a year on that one before we actually brought it out to market. It wasn't quite mature enough uh, when we acquired it to, to bring it out. So we worked for about a year um, with Nigel, uh, really refined it, repackaged it from where he had it into something a little bit more sleek and, and brought it to market. Um, and, and the inventor, Nigel, is still working uh, with, with you guys? Nigel, um, just here recently, has moved on to other things. So he's, he's, an, he's an inventor uh, okay. by nature. So he, he's always wanting to like, what's next? What's the next new thing? So he, um, 
he's still involved to some degree, but he's largely now focused on his new projects that he's he's working on. So we'll see what what happens with that. We're still in touch with Nigel, and so we'll we'll see where that goes in the future and what what he develops because that's his passion is figuring out the next wave of technology. Very good. So maybe just explain again the tire which obviously you put on your tires. You can use it on mountain bike, gravel, racing bike tire to check your and monitor your tire pressure. And shock width is obviously you put on your air shock, either on the front, uh, front suspension to man manage the, the, the pressure in your shock or in the rear shock if you have an air shock. And then you just install it. And what would be the benefit for, for this measurement? Yeah. So once you have it installed on your suspension, whether it's a front or rear suspension, it will monitor what's happening at 100 hertz. So 100 times per second, it's measuring the pressure changes in your suspension. So as it's connected, as you, when you hit a bump and your suspension compresses, that changes the pressure yes. and it's monitoring that pressure and it's looking for behaviors of that pressure. Okay. Um, and so, for example, if, if you're, once your suspension is compressed, if it's yes. rebounding too quickly, um, yes. we'll be able to measure that. Or if it's rebounding too slowly, we can measure that. So we can offer recommendations um, for how to tune your suspension. So if you okay. need to change your compression or your rebound or whatever it is, we can we can offer suggestions on how you can tweak that to improve the performance of your suspension. Okay, would you recommend you run one in the front on the front suspension and simultaneously uh, one on the rear? It is helpful if you have a full suspension bike to run two at the same time. Okay. Um, just that way you can you can measure what's what's going on at the same time. Um, a lot of people, if they only have one device, will swap um, between the front and rear, okay. and, and you can do that. Um, it usually takes one or two times to go, to go back and forth between the front and rear, only because um, as you change as yes. you change your front suspension, it may impact how your bike rides, and therefore uh, it would impact how your rear suspension acts. And then okay. once you modify your rear suspension your your front may handle a little bit differently as well so you may need to swap back and forth uh potentially a time or two but yes. um it's doable yeah no that's super interesting obviously as you said when you have a suspension and it's going in and then rebounding and you see the rebound is too quick and if this is measured and then you would just add a little bit of rebound damping uh, and slow or uh, speed up the process of the damping or reduce the speed. So in order to optimize it, and obviously as well, it's changing with the course. If you're riding today somewhere on a more of a sloping, uh, on a, a smoother and, and more uh, aggressive course where you have more and harder pumps, then you, you learn how to set up your suspension. I think you learn so much more about the suspension setup because I think a lot of people just buy a bike and, and ride it and don't really know uh, and it's too many dials and too many things with air pressure to change, but I, I can see that that's very, very helpful. We do have them in the shop and we, uh, we even rent them out because people sometimes maybe are concerned about the, uh, the, the investment uh, just to try it. And so we have devices for, for customers to try it out. So it's really cool. Yeah. So use it for yourself. And, and how much did you learn yourself about the, the, the product? Yeah, well, it's interesting with every single one of the new products that we create. So obviously, Quark is primarily known for its power meters. But yes. um, when you start getting into suspension or tire pressure, you become a content expert within that. So I feel like, you know, if I if I were to liken it to going to school, I feel like every single one of these products that I these new products that we move into, I end up with another degree 
in something else. Um, and so now I have a degree in suspension and I have a degree in, in tire pressure is what it feels like. Um, so yeah, you end up learning quite a bit just to make sure that you're doing the right things for what's required uh, to bring that product out to market um, and, and ensure that you're doing the right thing. So I work a lot with the engineers, um, whether it's on the with Shockwiz, whether it's on the suspension side, trying to understand what's happening, why you're seeing some of the changes that you do see, um, and how to offer a good recommendation to, um, you know, resolve a potential um, issue that may be happening with with the way that your suspension set up. Yes. And then obviously our our programmers who are programming the firmware, so they can program that into the firmware appropriately to to make sure that it you know, gives the right recommendation to the user. So yeah, you end up learning quite a bit once you get into the weeds on, on all these products. And how much you learn from, let's say within the company and how much is maybe input from users. They send you emails and said, okay, uh, this we could change and this we could change. And how much did it change as well when you became a part of the SRAM family and how much is the input from other, from other uh, parts of the SRAM family? Yeah. So the input from the rest of SRAM is pretty significant. Right. I mean, that's one of the benefits that we've got rock shocks on board. So from the suspension side, there's a lot of knowledge there. Um, you know, on, on the tire whiz side, we've got zip. And so they offered some, some helpful feedback with information and data that they had, but we also borrowed with, because we had had shock whiz first, we borrowed a lot of technology from shock whiz and brought that over to tire whiz yes. um, because it's, both of those are pressure sensors. And so as far as the mechanical design and the pressure sensing, um, we were able to borrow some of the technology from, from ShockWiz and bring that into TireWiz. So uh, we do end up kind of borrowing knowledge or asking you know, for assistance as we develop these, these products from uh, other, other areas where people are experts, which is really nice to have those, those resources available. Um, as far as, as input from the general public, that's really my job, frankly. Um, my job is to understand what it is that the customer wants, um, and, and how I can bring that into a product and make it useful to that customer. And so I'll have lots of conversations with contacts or, or pros that we, we sponsor, et cetera, to understand what needs and desires and things that they would like to see and how we can bring those into a product. So it's gonna be useful um, for solving a problem that maybe they're seeing or, or making their bike perform better. And so I'll have lots of those conversations with people. Of course, it's a little bit tricky when um, to get some of that input when the products aren't, aren't publicly known about because you're developing it with a, with a degree of secrecy. Um, and so, that's where you've, you've got to have those, those tight relationships to, to make sure that you get that input uh, from trusted individuals. And, you know, it's difficult that we just can't put it out uh, openly to everyone because I'd love to hear all that feedback. Very but, cool, very cool. And going back to tire with, it's interesting. Do you give a recommendation on tire pressure by you measuring how the tire is performing on the road? And obviously you, maybe you go to a different country and you're riding on rougher roads and normally you're riding this kind of tire pressure. And then you will see the tire is performing differently, or you feel like the tire is bouncing too much. Can you can you see that within the software? So you can't see um, 
So tire whiz measures at one hertz when it's actually riding. And so okay. it's just one time per second uh, that it's taking a measurement of, of air pressure. Um, yes. In a laboratory, we can we can increase that rate to a much higher level okay. and we can actually see changes in terrain. Um, yes. the, the challenge is that uses a lot of battery life. Yes. And so okay. um, you'd be replacing batteries unfortunately fairly often if we yes. were to have that higher data rate so it's it's a balance of mm -hmm. uh, providing enough fidelity in the information yes. um, but not so much that you're having to replace batteries all the time so um, that's one of the development tools that we've used um, with total system efficiency is is measuring tire pressure at a higher rate of speed once again for the average uh, customer it doesn't make sense just because they'd be replacing batteries regularly. Um, but it is, it is interesting um, because we do have a tire pressure uh, calculator within the Axis app. And we actually have a web version as well. Um, yes. And the web version is um, not as well known, but anyways, it's it, frankly, it's a, it's a incredibly comprehensive. We've data mined thousands and thousands of, of riders um, and we've created this incredibly comprehensive tire pressure calculator for mm -hmm. everything, um, okay. from road to gravel, to cycle cross, the mountain bike, um, wet conditions, what rim width do you have? What tire width are you running? Um, et cetera. So is it dry and dusty? Is it, is it wet and muddy? And so you can change all those things, uh, yes. within the, the tire pressure calculator, um, that gives you uh, frankly, the most accurate recommendation that's out on the market today. Uh, so it's it's pretty cool that you know this this little tiny tire whiz device pushed us into doing so much more um, in developing you know tire pressure calculators, etc. So uh, you never know where where things are going to grow with time in in these projects. Oh, fantastic! And I have to say this: you've been working now for many years with SRAM, and from the from obviously the start of grip shift of redesigning how people shift to uh, access today, and and the super innovative way you shift and everything like this with Zip. And I think it's it's maybe one of the most innovative companies uh, we have ever we have ever had the pleasure to work with, and it's really cool uh, to to see what you guys come up with every every year, every season. It's really really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, appreciate that. That's that's an area that as all of SRAM, we, we try really hard to be innovative. And a lot of people say that, but you know, you look back at, we started with grip shift and it's yeah. deep in our roots of doing something different. We were the first to use wireless electronics. We're the first to have a tire pressure sensor, et cetera. Um, so there's been lots of things that we've done over the years that have pushed the innovation um, of bicycles further forward. Uh, and that's something that we try to do regularly. And, and that's one of the joys of my job is I get to think about what is the future of bicycles and how are we going to push this innovation even further. So it's it's a super fun area to be in. Uh, also very challenging to to kind of invent the future, if you will. Yes. Um, it's it's a whole lot easier when somebody's already created something and you're like, oh, I want to create that too. But to be the first ones in an area is yes. very difficult. So. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking hard about how we can service the rider best yeah. uh, with our components that we make and push that innovation further than anyone else. How far ahead are you working? Are you working on products 24, 25, 26 model year? Or how far is your 
vision going ahead. So uh, yeah, what are you working on and when will we be able to, to see these things when you look at the time scale? Yeah, I, I mean, frankly, we are actively engineering products that are into model year 24 and maybe even a little bit beyond at this point. Oh. I have kind of a general product plan that I would say is at least six years out um, yeah. of where we're headed. And of course that things change as you learn things. So it's not 100% set in stone and, and some of those things may shift uh, around, but you know, I've got a product plan that, that is future looking by a lot of years at this point. And, and as we move through the projects that are closer on the timeline, it, that impacts the the projects that are further out and and the lessons that you learn on those you know current projects so it's it's always evolving it's it's always an interesting balance to figure out well what are we going to do today versus what are we doing in five years very good you know I me mean, sometimes uh, we say in our team when you when you look back and you uh, look maybe three four years back you should be a little bit embarrassed about something you did a few years ago uh, because you you evolve and you think like, oh my god how did we I, I feel always about this when i'm thinking about um, racing bike tires 20 millimeters or 23 millimeters and today we would think how could we not have seen this um can you remember anything we think oh my god we thought really we had it and now today we know completely we were on the wrong track <laughs> you know I think this is a small thing. Uh, overall, we, we're pretty calculated with the moves that we make, right? And the products that we make. We don't wanna come to market with something that isn't of high quality um, and, and very durable. But one of the things that we've, we've learned is uh, back when, when we introduced the um, red power meter in 2012, um, we had uh, a potting uh, material that we we injected into that power meter on top of the circuit board, which that's actually a pretty common thing that a lot of a lot of manufacturers do to seal um, an air cavity is they'll inject a potting material, which is basically kind of a a rubberized polymer uh, sort of thing, <clears throat> and it protects the circuit board and waterproofs the whole thing. And so we were we had done that for a number of years, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But we decided, well, rather than putting a potting material in there, which is adding weight, um, and and there's always a chance that there there's a little gap and some water can still get in, et cetera. What if we were just really careful about how we sealed all of the enclosure of the power meter rather, and then we wouldn't have to put the potting material inside the power meter. And so that's exactly what we did. Um, and in our current generation of power meters, that's exactly what we do today. And it's been a really, really impressive uh, in terms of the durability of that product. Um, as far as waterproofness goes, okay. it's been really cool to see. So I look back and it's like, oh, that's a lesson learned of we, yes. we were using an industry best practice at the time, but we improved on something for our application and it actually works much better. So. Um, that's part of what happens as you move through product life cycles, you, you gain some maturity and you improve on the quality uh, as you go forward. So that's exactly what we've done. 
Very cool. We spoke now about so many things and we really didn't start about power meters, which I think is cool. And, and tell us all about it. I think Jim and you said Jim and his wife, they started the company. I think they were in Australia on some racing course and they didn't really find a power meter which worked, but I'm sure you can tell us all about it in, in much more details. Yeah, so Jim um, was the founder of Quark uh, yeah. with his, his wife at the time, Mika. And Jim was um, living in Australia and racing as a professional triathlete. And so being a professional athlete, usually unless you're at the very, very, very top, you don't make a lot of money. You're usually kind of bootstrapped and tight financially. And so he was in that boat where he didn't have uh, enough money to be able to go out and, and buy a $3,000 power meter from SRM at the time. And, uh, but he had a master's degree from MIT. Um, and so anyways, he's like, well, I'm, I'm smart enough um, to create this product on my own. So he decided his dad was, was an inventor. And so he has that, that entrepreneurial an inventor spirit uh, in Jim as well. And so Jim decided, hey, I can create this myself. And so he started doing a little bit of, of work and research on how he could do it, uh, found his way around the patent landscape mm -hmm. and started moving towards a power meter. Thankfully at a local university in Australia, they had some of the equipment that he needed to, to verify proof of concept of this power meter that he was developing. And, and everything kind of proved that it was working um, generally as it should. And so this was back in 2006. So at that time, um, he continued working on it for a little bit longer and then moved uh, back home, which is in Spearfish, South Dakota, where he, he grew up and his, his parents actually still live here. Um, and now that's where Cork is headquartered out of. So he moved back from Australia to Spearfish founded Quark as a business. And in 2008, they started shipping uh, the first power meters out of Spearfish. Um, cool. And then jump, jump forward just a little bit. In 2011, SRAM uh, acquired Quark and brought them in into the SRAM family of brands. And in 2012, we launched a new power meter with SRAM, which was the first power meter to ever be integrated into a drivetrain. And that was the red drivetrain. Um, the red 2012 drivetrain. Fantastic. What does the name Quark stand for? Um, so <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, so it's a, it's a small subatomic particle, um, technically is what it is, it, what a quark is. Um, but Jim always had, uh, he's always liked music as well. And mm -hmm. so he figured if he was going to have a band, it would be a rock band. And so if he was going to have a rock band, he was going to name it Quark. Or if he was going to have a business, he was going to name it Quark. Well, the business came first, so he named it Quark. <laughs> and when are we going to see the rock band Quark? Yeah, good question. I, I don't know if you ever will. <laughs> although although I have seen Jim on stage and videos of of Jim on stage, and and uh, he can get after it. So it's, it's pretty cool. Very good. Maybe tell us a bit more. How does a power meter work when when... Yeah. How does, where do you start and what technology is needed and, and how, how is this working? Yeah. So as far as the, the general idea of how power meters work, so it's measuring the amount of strain that, that is input that the rider inputs into the crank arms. And so 
Um, there are strain gauges that are on the spider of the power meter that are actually uh, glued onto the spider itself. Okay. And so any, any torque or, or strain uh, that is input into the power meter by the rider is picked up by those strain gauges. Then we process that on our, on our circuit board. So it goes through a number of different operations on the circuit board um, and eventually ends up getting spit out to the head unit. Um, and all of this happens extremely quickly, obviously, but um, it, a number ends up getting spit out uh, to the head unit and you can see that number live on your head unit. Um, so all of our power meters on the, on the quark side um, as far as spider-based power meters are accurate to one and a half percent accuracy, which is kind of the industry standard uh, for accuracy that's out there today. Okay, okay. And you measure on the in the spider or, or have you done different different ways and different technologies, different places where you measure? Yeah, good, good question. So um, our primary power meters that, that we're most known for at this point are all spider-based. And so mm -hmm. um, that Spider-based power meters measure both left and right side because the torque um, from both, both pedals um, goes into the spider before it goes out to the chain. Um, yes. And so we're able to measure uh, input torques from both left and right side. We just developed a recently here, um, a new power meter and that's, that's this one here. So this is the, the rival axis power meter and actually, uh, inside of here, let me just take this cap off here. Um, so inside of this, uh, down inside the spindle there, which is probably yes. a little bit difficult to see, yeah. but inside the spindle is where all the electronics in the, the uh, strain gauges are actually glued. And so okay. all the electronics live inside of the spindle um, yes. for this power meter. And then this unit here is where the battery is housed. Okay. And so this kind of seals the unit and then also the antenna to communicate, um, to send the information from the strain gauges out to your head unit happens uh, because of this device where the antenna is located. Um, so this is, a new, this is a new power meter that we just recently uh, launched a couple of months ago here. Um, yeah. But this is, um, this one's really, really neat because it's it's a very clean and sleek package, um, very robust and durable because it's all sealed within this spindle. Um, yes. And one of the one of the things that I'll point out here is because so you can imagine that there's another crank arm that bolts yes. onto this side here, which yes. I, I don't have uh, with me right now. But um, this would be the drive side crank arm that sits yes. over here. Well it's only the impulses from your left foot that actually go into the spindle. Your, okay. your, in, your input from the drive side, from the right side pedal, just go directly out to the chain. So those, those forces never actually get measured in the spindle. Okay. So this is just mechanically speaking, um, this product is a little bit different than our spindle-based, or excuse me, spider-based power meters, just because um, being in the spindle, it's a left side only power meter, whereas spider based is a dual sided. Um, so some, some differences between those, but that's a really neat one. It comes in at a price point um, that is frankly, uh, really incredible. We've, we've been able to lower the price of power meters from what they were, you know, back when they were first introduced the three to $5,000 in the very early days. And now 
Now this, what you see here is down to um, 249 US dollars. Well, so, and how compatible, cross compatible is this product? So if somebody has already an existing group set or anyone's upgraded, would it work with a previous model red or force or anything like this? Yep. So this uses a, a dub spindle. And so if you have uh, a drivetrain or a crank set that has a dub spindle already on it, this will bolt right into it. And okay. so that's that's really the big thing. All of uh, all of SRAM's current drivetrains that we manufacture today, um, they primarily have a, a dub spindle on there. So if you have a current generation SRAM drivetrain, this should be able to fit it. Um, okay. So it is it is pretty cross compatible in terms of of uh, drivetrains that this fits on. Very good. And DAP obviously is a, a kind of a bottom bracket bottom bracket standard you have developed, and it is cross compatible mountain bike, uh, cyclocross, road. So you're trying to just with all these standards we had now, you came up with a new standard to fix all the issues and make it more durable and so on. Can you tell us a bit more about DAP? Yeah. So um, DAP is a is a, one of the it's the newest spindle um basically it refers to the diameter of the spindle um mm -hmm. but historically there's been lots of different standards for bottom brackets to the point that it's just it's really frankly messy and, and confusing of all the different standards that are out there so historically there's been bb30 gxp and then a um a 24 millimeter spindles etc so there's lots of different spindles and all the different bottom brackets that fit various bikes to those different spindle types well what we wanted to do is get away from um, having different spindles and just offer one so our engineers in uh, san luis obispo uh, california did a lot of work in developing this dub spindle where we realized that if we um, if we took if we took the spindle, uh, this part here, and we just changed the diameter of it just enough, so we kind of actually made the diameter a little bit smaller, um, where it would fit inside uh, all different types of frames. So if you have a BSA uh, threaded bottom bracket, it'll fit within that frame. Or if you have a, a BB30 frame or press fit uh, 30 frame, it'll also fit that. And so um, what we did is we modified the spindle so it'll fit within all of the different frames. So now you only have one spindle to worry about, and yes. then you just pick the bottom bracket that matches from your spindle to your, to your specific frame. frame. So um, it really simplifies everything uh, in that whole bottom bracket area and actually is a lot lighter than, than some of the other spindles that were out there previously as well. So there's a lot of benefit. It's stiffer, it's lighter, it's simpler. It's just a way easier system to use. So there's a lot of, of customer benefits in that. Yes, not only for customers as well, for dealers and distributors. So I think <laughs> uh, a great job and I really love these. I love these inventions when somebody, you don't have to change everything again. It, it works with everything and it simplifies everything and it works even, as you said, it's lighter, it's stronger, it's lasts better and whatever. So I think you really did again a great job with Dub. Uh, it's a it's fantastic technology. Yeah, yeah, that's, I was really excited when, uh, when I knew that they were developing that, just how it was going to simplify everything, yes. um, which, you know, people always are like, man, you introduced another standard well, if you introduce the right standard, it actually makes things better. 
And that's exactly what Dub did. It, it cleaned up a lot of the bottom bracket mess that was out there in terms of different spindles and, and uh, everything else. So it really simplified things and, and made things a lot better. Speaking about power meters again, who do you think should buy a power meter and why? So who is your normal customers? And if say, somebody says, oh, I'm riding just a bit along, what do you think, what would you tell him? Why should you have a power meter? Yeah, so historically, I mean, I'll just jump back a few years here. Um, historically, power meters have been used um, by top level pro racers, right? That's where they kind of first got, got adopted and people realized a lot of benefit. And then uh, triathletes are known for, for being early adopters. So triathletes uh, kind of jumped on board and started using power meters a lot. And then that trickled over into, into more road racing. And now it's coming more into mountain biking. And so frankly, it, in all disciplines at this point, uh, there's, there's great use cases for a power meter. So if you're trying to understand how hard should I go on this particular climb, or how can I improve my performance? It doesn't matter if you're mountain bike, gravel, road, triathlon, et cetera. Um, all, of those, all of those different disciplines, it makes sense for at this point. And as far as um, the typical customer, so it used to be you know, a very high-end product. Well, with the introduction of, of all the different power meters that we have, including this, this new rival power meter um, being down, you know within a couple hundred dollars for this power meter here um it's available to basically everyone mm -hmm. and so it's no longer just that high-end product that used to be available only to the best of the best and the most elite racers now it's now it's everybody and so that technology that that was used uh, or could, is continued to be used at the, at the top level is also available to your average person um, and so that's really cool. We've, we've worked hard to bring it to that level um, and, you know, create products that um, are, are bringing it to a broader audience uh, than, than ever before, which is really neat to be a part of. That's very cool. And I think as well, when, uh, when you can't measure it, you can't really improve it. Uh, and I think that, that really makes a big difference. The only thing I feel like if the power meter is on and your Strava is running, every ride becomes a, a measurable, uh, it, it's a race every ride, yeah. So I think sometimes I had it that my head unit uh, died, but battery, I didn't charge it. And then you ride and think, okay, that's actually kind of cool riding without any data, just enjoying the ride and looking around. Uh, and there will be no Strava, there will be no nothing. Uh, just go and ride your bike. Yep, yeah, it's interesting. There's. There's a, a number of athletes that I know, particularly on the mountain bike side, that they want the information, they want the data, but yes. they don't want to be looking at it during their ride. So they'll, they'll take their head unit and they'll put it in their pocket or whatever, and they'll ride because they, they realize that there's a lot of benefit in being able to utilize the data to go back and, and analyze it and help to improve their training, et cetera. Um, but they don't want the ride to be dictated by how much power they're putting out. Yes. And so, um, you know, they'll just tuck the head unit in their pocket and still record the information, uh, but they're not looking at it. Whereas a lot of other say time trialists or, or triathletes, et cetera, they are very careful about holding a certain wattage because they know that if they go too far above that point um, that it's going to be, they're going to be producing too much lactate 
and and physiologically it's going to create a lot of stress and strain and they won't be able to hold the pace any longer so they they hold very close um, to their power meter numbers of, of this is where I want to be riding this is the level of effort that I want to do and I don't want to go above that and so once again it really depends on the athlete and what what their goals are of how they use the power meter but uh, at the end of the day the information is all helpful and it's all beneficial to be able to go back um, and analyze that and, and see how you can improve your performance for the next time. You're dealing with a lot of customers, obviously, and you have maybe a lot of contact with them. What do you think is the most common issues and how can people avoid it? What, what do you recommend to maintain your power meter and just to keep it at the best possible state? Yeah, maintenance of power meters has gotten really simple. Um, basically it's, you know, occasionally clean it with gentle soaps, um, mm -hmm. you know, just a gentle soap and, and water. You don't need to pressure wash them, etc. They are, all of our power meters are IPX7 waterproof. So, um, they're pretty, pretty durable and robust. Um, but frankly, it's just kind of keeping it clean, uh, replacing the battery from time to time when it needs it, which is typically, um, two to 300 hours depending on the, on the power meter. Um, so it's a lot of riding, you know, 200 hours gets you through basically the majority of a, a whole riding season. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really simple nowadays. It's just keeping it clean. Um, so it, it functions properly and that goes, goes along with your chain as well. Um, and then, and then just replacing the battery occasionally. It's, it's super easy. There's not a whole lot to it anymore. Okay, very good. Do you see an issue with heat in Dubai? Because obviously we have some some really hot temperatures here. Uh, do we need to calibrate it or anything else needs to be done or just go out and ride? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. So inside of all of our power meters, we have a temperature compensation that's built into them. Mm -hmm. And so um, as you ride, as long as the temperature doesn't change really quickly, mm -hmm. um, the the firmware has the ability to compensate for changes in that temperature as you're riding. And so um, there's no need to, to stop mid-ride to recalibrate and do that sort of thing um, anymore. Early power meters didn't have that technology. And so earlier generation power meters, you'd have to stop, say you started in the morning when it was cooler and then you yep. rode into the, into the afternoon. Well, as it warmed up, your power data might get off by a little bit. Um, with those older power meters and you'd, you'd maybe need to, to recalibrate or re-zero your power meter. Nowadays, with the temperature compensation that we've built into the power meters and, and into the firmware, you don't have to worry about that. So it's really just jump on the bike, go ride it, have fun, enjoy it, don't think about it, and, uh, and the data is going to be there when you finish. Very good. There was this pedaling backwards that you had to pedal five times backwards. Is this as well nothing anymore? Yeah, so in the spider-based power meters that we created, um, instead of having to go into your head unit and press buttons and manually get it to trigger a calibration event, um, okay. we, we created a system where you could pedal backwards five times yeah. and that would trigger the power meter um, to, to calibrate. Well, we've introduced something new called Magic Zero. Yeah. And Magic Zero basically automatically calibrates the power meter for you. And so Magic Zero is really intelligent in uh, knowing when you're pedaling, when you're not pedaling, et cetera. And it will take, uh, it will automatically check your calibration 
when you're coasting. And so yes. when there's no, no strain being put through the power meter. Um, and so uh, it'll, it'll take that calibration when you're coasting and it will actually reference previous calculations to make sure that it didn't get a, a, an error somewhere in there and doesn't apply the wrong calibration. And if it sees something outside of the norm, then it actually throws that value out rather than, than recalibrates to that wrong value. So it's really intelligent about how it does it, um, yes. which means that uh, with spider-based power meters if, that we make today, if you turn on Magic Zero, you don't even have to, um, you don't even have to calibrate the power meter at the start of the ride. You can just go ride, um, okay. and it will it will check the calibration periodically during the ride for you. So you don't even have to do anything nowadays, which is awesome. Fantastic. You you had with the news from Red components, you had implemented the power meter as part of the chainring, or chainring being part of the power meter. Um, how do you how do you see this? Is this something? Um, to improve the accuracy of the power meter or what was the reason behind it? Yeah, so the, a lot of the reason, um, it, well, I mean, there's, there's frankly a, lo a lot of consumer benefits for it, but basically it's lighter weight, it's a little bit stiffer, it offers uh, a little bit more um, accuracy within the measurement just because there's no chain ring bolts, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, between the ring and the spider. And so it's a direct transmission all the way into the, into the power meter itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's very robust and durable um, in terms of, of the power meter itself being one piece, um, also extremely lightweight and looks really clean and smooth aesthetically. It's just, it, frankly, it's it's an incredible looking power meter. Um, and so there, those were a lot of the motivations at that red axis level to do that power meter was we wanted to create um, a super lightweight, very durable, very clean and stealthy looking power meter. And so that's exactly what we did um, in order to, to, you know, produce that product. Well, it, it looks really nice and it, it's really, it's, it's, I have one on our bikes here in, in, in the house and, and the, the family is using them and they look really neat, really cool. Yeah, well done. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. You, you're working with a lot of pro teams, you were saying before, you have any cool stories from the pro peloton and who was the guy with the highest power number? What are the guy or the girl with the highest power number? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Power. Yeah. Man, I've seen a lot of power files over the, over the years. Um, trying to think. It's probably been, there's probably been two or three riders that um, have been close to that 1800 watt realm, uh, in a sprint. But I think, um, you know, as far as stories of working with athletes, um, we've got a very tight relationship with the Scott Sram mountain bike team. And that one's, uh, that one's been kind of fun here lately, just because power meters on the mountain bike side are, are now becoming more and more popular. So historically they've been, you know, it's, historically been well adopted by triathletes and, and road riders. And so we've worked with them for a lot of years. And, and I'd say on the mountain bike side is something that's a little bit newer and a little bit fresher. Um, and it's been fun to work with the mountain bike side a little bit more and, and see what they, what challenges they face, how we can make a product better for them. And so we've worked closely with a lot of the Scott SRAM guys, but frankly, all of our mountain bike teams. Um, and so 
getting lots of feedback from them. They've been, uh, you, you might've seen some images of some prototype power meters that we've had them on over, over the last little bit. Um, but yeah, just working with them and seeing what needs they have. And frankly, um, the power outputs that those guys do, it's, it's incredible, right? I mean, there's a reason why there's some of the top riders in the world, but yeah, just how much, how much torque they can put out uh, on a steep climb, um, which translates into wattage is, is pretty phenomenal. So they, they hit those climbs super hard with a lot of torque and drive right up those climbs. It's, it's pretty amazing. So you would have the answer, who is the best cyclist then? Is it the triathlete, the road cyclist or the mountain biker? So you, you would have, <laughs> you have all the data and you could really reveal it now and say, listen, okay, the roadies are the, the strong guys or is it a mountain bike guy? So you have the data. Yeah, I, I've definitely looked at a lot of that data, right? Yeah. But there's, uh, I would say it really depends on, on the discipline. Some of the, some of the mountain bikers are really good for that hour to hour and a half period. Um, whereas say like a typical cyclist in the tour de France is, is looking to be better around hour four or five. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just a different type of athlete, a little bit more endurance oriented on the road side versus the mountain bike side is a little bit more power, um, and high intensity oriented in general. Mm -hmm. And, and the same thing holds true for triathletes. I would say triathletes are very incredible, um, at holding a particular pace for a, an extremely long period of time. Um, mm. you know, if you look at, at say Jan Ferdino's power numbers and just what he can hold steady over an entire Ironman, it blows me away. Um, how he can just hold that number so constant. Um, and I wouldn't expect a mountain biker to be able to hold that same constant number for that same period of time. So it depends on how you want to if, if you're going to say that one athlete is better than another, it's really difficult because they all have their own specialties. Some are, some are better at higher intensities and some are better at maintaining a, a really steady pace. But um, that's what makes, you know, the sport so unique and so different is the fact that it, you can be um, more of a, a powerful athlete or you can be more of an endurance athlete and there's still a place within cycling that you'll fit well, which is pretty cool to see. But how can I tweak my power numbers to impress my friends on Strava? Is there any trick, anything we can do? <laughs> just for one or two rides, I just want to shock them with some amazing data. <laughs> well, you can always go into the Axis app and you can always <laughs> artificially increase your, your power. You know, it, it won't be what it's factory calibrated to, but you can artificially bump that number, <laughs> that calibration value up um, and it'll, it'll give you a higher value. Uh, if that's what you're going for. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that there's other, you can probably Google it, but I'm pretty sure there's probably some areas online where you can drop your power file into and say, increase it by 3% and it'll, it'll artificially move those numbers for you. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, power pedals, anything on the horizon? What is, what is your opinion about power pedals? Um, better crank? Yes. That's a really, that's a, that's a great question. It's, that's a tricky one as well. Um, so power, power pedals in general, um, offer some unique advantages. We, we acquired PowerTap um, a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. what was it? Two or three years ago, man. Um, yeah. anyways, PowerTap. So we, we've had some power pedals within the SRAM portfolio. 
um, in the past. And there are some intriguing benefits with power pedals, um, but they're also a little bit challenging as well because you're putting highly sensitive electronics um, at the most susceptible spot for damage uh, on a bike other than the other than the wheels themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're hanging a really sensitive electronic piece of uh, measurement technology in a spot that's prone to getting smacked on things. And so pedals can be really challenging in that sense. Um, but the nice thing with pedals is they're very easy to move from one bike to another. So if you're traveling, et cetera, there is some benefit there. As far as the future of pedals, um, I think pedals are gonna be around for, for a while and we'll see what happens with that technology as, as we go forward. Um, on the SRAM side, so we have, um, we acquired PowerTap um, power meters a couple of years ago, and then we also recently acquired time pedals. And so we've, we've, yes. got, um, we've got pedal technology in our portfolio. And so it's just, we'll see if, if a power meter makes sense. And that's something that is an ongoing conversation. We're always looking at what the future is and how we can move uh, forward and be innovative. And so that's something that we, we are discussing regularly um, and who knows what's gonna happen. No, oh, fantastic. Yeah, we're looking forward. I think this is, as you said, I think people looking for something, they have maybe several bikes, they have a, a triathlon bike, they have a road bike, they have a gravel bike, they're using the same pedals when they would maybe like to change this around. And But now you have obviously the offering with a uh, rival access um, option. So that that's a that's a great offering. Um, no, fantastic. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm conscious of your time. It was really, really cool to, to speak to you about all this. And I think everybody learned a lot about uh, SRAM technology. I want to thank you guys, uh, you at Quark and the guys at SRAM for the amazing work you're doing. I think you're really making uh, cycling uh, people's life better and you make it very innovative. And you, you've done over the last couple of years some really amazing products. We are super proud to be your uh, partner for this region of the world and yeah keep up the good work and um yeah it's really nice to to have to have your products on our bikes yeah awesome thanks for having me i'm glad glad we're able to do what we do and and be partnered with you guys and uh super fun to to be able to create the products that we do so it's it's great thanks for everything Thank you very much, Nate. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we have Claudio from uh, Cycon, and he will speak all about uh, glasses and travel cases, and hopefully with COVID uh, getting under control over the world, I think traveling season will start, and so he will tell us all about bags and glasses and everything they do. So thank you very much, Nate. Regards to everyone, and we hope to see you at Eurobike. Are you coming to Europe? Um, I'm not sure at this point. There's a there's a strong possibility, but I don't have my flight booked currently. So we'll see what happens. Okay, it would be nice if, if we, we meet each other there. That would be great. Perfect. We'll see thank what you happens. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your time. Yep, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for watching.